Bandwidth for Change Log is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. I'm Luna Duclo, and it is go time. It's Go Time, a weekly podcast where we discuss interesting topics around the Go programming language, the community, and everything in between. If you currently write Go or aspire to, this is the show for you. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Go Time. Today's episode is episode number 40, and our sponsors for today are TopTal and the Ultimate Go Training Series. On the show today, we have myself, Eric St. Martin. We also have Carlicia Pinto. Say hello, Carlicia. Hi, everybody. And Brian Kettleson. Hello. And our special guest today is actually Luna DeClos. And I don't want to spoil a little too much about kind of what we're going to talk about, so I'll let you... Uh, Give a little introduction about yourself and kind of what you're working on. All right. So, hi, everyone. I'm Luna Duclos. I am one of the few game developers that works full-time with Go. Today, we'll be talking a bit more about that, what I do day-to-day, how the development stack at my current job works, Um, probably a bit about my previous job as well, and some of the open source stuff I do and some of the community involvement stuff. I participate in. So the game development is kind of one of the like really exciting areas, especially. And you're one of the few people I think I've heard that do game development. Is this like backend server technology for MMOs or is this actual front end OpenGL DirectX stuff? Where's that line drawn with Go versus other languages you might use? Uh, in my case, I don't touch the client computers at all. So there will not be a single line of my code running on anyone's computer except for our own servers. What I mostly work on is the web stack as well as the game servers themselves. So in my case, I work on a game called The Hunter Classic. It is a online single and multiplayer game with regular competitions, uh, leaderboards between hunters, a large website, regular competitions and that kind of stuff. Oh, that's really interesting. So I guess understanding the game a little bit helps with what the infrastructure is because different types of games have different needs. Mm-hmm. So is this like a zoned-based game? Um, no, it is a lobby-based game. So if you've played Diablo, it's a perfect example. Diablo has a lobby. You can create a game, you can join other people's games. In the Hunter's case, the actual multiplayer is peer-to-peer. So there is no involvement from the server for the actual multiplayer play in the game that uses RackNet. What the servers do is they handle all the competitions, all the whole scoring system, as well as regular rotations, uh, an in-game store, inventory management, that kind of stuff. Oh, excellent. Basically, they handle the stuff that persists between games while the actual multiplayer within a game session is handled peer-to-peer. And what sort of technologies are the uh, client side of the games written? Okay, so like most other companies, we use C++ to write game clients. Avalanche Studios, which is my employer, has their own engine, which they use to build all their games. So that's what's also being used for the Hunter Classic. So what drove the... What was like the motivation for using Go on the server side with kind of already having a development group that is familiar with things like C++ and stuff? Was there kind of a productivity gain or? There were multiple reasons. Um, The main reason is that um, the existing servers before I started were not written in C++ to start with. They are written in PHP and Python running on App Engine. Um, It works. The old servers are still powering the game and doing their thing. But Python being a weakly typed language means it's really fast to develop in. However, it's really easy to break things in such a large code base as the Hunter has, which is why there's now a process ongoing to start moving development of new features to Go. So we have a Go server running on Kubernetes 
several Go servers, actually. And all new features are going to those servers rather than the old Python app engine ones. We're also slowly migrating over old features to the new servers as time allows. The main reason is mostly that Go is much faster, which means cheaper servers. And it's also much harder to break things with Go compared to Python. Okay, so this is kind of like a microservice-based architecture and, you know, like inventory management is handled by one service and rather than kind of continuing to maintain that particular service that may be running in PHP or Python, you're slowly rebuilding these things in Go? That's right. Okay. And what kind of like performance and um, resource benefits or gains have, have you seen from that? Are you significantly less servers now that you're rolling these things over? Um, there's two performance gains we've seen. One, we're moving from Python to Go. That's the obvious one. Go is much faster, consumes much less CPU. But there's a second gain as well, and that's moving from App Engine to actual VMs. App Engine servers are quite small and constrained on CPU despite their fairly high price. So we've seen as much gain from switching from Python to Go as from switching from App Engine to actual virtual machines. Nice. And you said you're also doing Kubernetes too, right? Yeah, every fi- the, um, the whole new Go cluster is running in Kubernetes. It's running in Google Cloud on a GKE cluster, which is Google's managed Kubernetes offering. So we don't have to manage a cluster ourselves. Google does it for us. So one of the biggest things that I remember in the last couple months that you did was the uh, kubectl manager extension for Kubernetes. Can you tell us about that? That's really exciting. Yeah, uh, it was actually from my previous job still. As some people might know, I used to be self-employed and had my own little business called Palmstem Games. Uh, I was also running Kubernetes clusters at Palmstem Games. And as part of that, we were using Let's Encrypt as our SSL provider. We did not want to request search manually every month. That's just asking for things to expire. And neither did we want to use Kubernetes ingress objects, which was the only way to get Let's Encrypt to work automatically at the time. So I ended up deciding to fork Kelsey Hightower's CubeCert Manager project. I took all the documentation as well as the basic approach of how things work, and I decided to rewrite the whole code base to use Xenolf Lego instead of a self-rolled Lego library, which meant that KubeCert Manager, my fork, magically had support for over 20 DNS providers, while there was only one in Kelsey's version. That was the main motivation for everything. There were already documentations in place. There was already a design in place for how things work. It just needed to be fleshed out to work with more DNS providers and be easier to deploy and set up. So that's what I did with the rewrite of it. Are these still two individual projects or have they since been merged together? Um, they are two individual projects still. However, there hasn't really been any activity on Kelsey's fork. So I'm not sure how alive it actually is. Yeah, Kelsey's was just a proof of concept that he wrote for a talk. I don't think he intended yeah, it indeed. to be a, a long-living project. That's right. So that's really cool. I've used your uh, extension, and it's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, and for anybody who might not be aware of sort of what we're talking about, um, like as you throw up individual services that may be publicly exposed in Kubernetes, this is basically um, something that you can run inside your Kubernetes cluster to basically issue SSL certificates on the fly using Let's Encrypt for the things that you deploy, which is just awesome. Like all of us remember struggling through, you have to go to your, your uh, SSL provider and you have to get all the, mm-hmm. the certs and then upload them to all the servers and all of that's gone. Like I hate getting the emails. Like I, I actually spaced out my SSL cert renewal so that I wouldn't have to do a bunch at one time. <laughs> uh. Now I get uh, emails from Let's Encrypt that says my certificates are expiring and it's it's yet another reminder of failed projects. You know, this this thing that I started up a couple months ago 
isn't in use anymore. Your certificate's expiring. Oh, yeah, I remember when I did that. <laughs> it's just like the domain expiring. Oh, I remember registering that domain. Oops. Whenever I get the domain renewals, I have to question my motivation. Like, I was pretty dumb for buying that before, and I have not used it in three years now. I'm going to renew it anyway. Yeah, let's renew it. Why? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it's that that holdout. One day, this might be useful to me. But I guess they cost little enough that that's actually a valid reasoning too. So, so actually, here's proof, right? Brian had owned GopherAcademy.com for some reason long before we had ever considered a conference or anything like that, and it was like. Well, we kind of need an entity to to run the conference. Hey, don't you still own GopherAcademy.com? <laughs> yeah, let me whip out my my domain Rolodex and let's take a look. That is awesome. <laughs> so, so there's proof right there that this happened. It could be useful See? one day. That's right. I'm validated. Thank you, Eric. I'm buying more domains now. I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, but one of them, one of them was actually useful. So uh, what other projects are you working on these days? Um, I recently released on a project called Instrumented SQL. Uh, with the Go 1.8 release, we had this nice context that we could pass to the database SQL package. But no one seemed to have started working on instrumentation using that concept. So I ended up, making, I ended up needing instrumentation at work. And after checking with the big boss, I was allowed to open source that instrumentation, which is how Instrumented SQL was born. It's a wrapping driver, basically. It will grab another SQL driver. It will wrap it with instrumentation and logging. And you can then call the wrapping driver using just a regular database SQL package, and everything will automatically be traced and logged for you based on the tracer and logger object in the context that are passed along. There's one caveat, and that's it grabs tracers and loggers from the context. That means you cannot use the non-context functions because those cannot be traced because mm. it doesn't know what request they belong to. Oh, interesting. There aren't that many of the non-context functions in the 1.8 SQL, though, are there? I'm trying to think. They didn't remove any because of the goal 1.0 compatibility guarantee, so they're still all there. You just shouldn't be using them anymore if you want to instrument your SQL calls. Now, I, what I was saying was there aren't that many that aren't, uh, that don't have an equivalent with context in the, oh, the yeah, function. Oh, yeah, you're right. There are none, to my knowledge, that don't have an equivalent. So, yeah, it's just a matter of adding a bunch of context after every function call. So what kind of data is logged from here? Uh, the instrument SQL function can trace calls. So it can use open tracing or Google tracing to build up traces from every call. And it can also log every SQL call. So it spits out the... SQL, along with all the arguments that were passed to a logger that you can pass in. That's it. It's really simple, but it's been quite useful. Yeah, it's crazy powerful. Even in the Rails days, uh, being able to look through the log and see what queries were being run and uh -huh. same time. Exactly. Thank you, Active Record. <laughs> <laughs> this is basically the same thing. It's five lines of code to get full tracing and full logging out of every SQL call you do. So interestingly, like, what kind of configuration is there? Like, could you have it only log queries that take longer than some specified time? Not currently, no. Currently, you can either log everything, log nothing, trace everything, or trace nothing. But that's it. There, there's currently no middle ground. But one of the things planned is to add more generic hooks so you can add some logic to decide whether you want to trace things or not. It's still useful, especially with an open tracing backend to it to be able to submit to. Yeah, that's yep. really awesome. Really cool. That hasn't been out very long, has it? I think I, I probably first ran across that maybe two or three weeks ago. It's a week old, so yeah. yeah. Very new. 
Now you understand my sense of time. (laughs) (laughs) Quite an interesting sense of time, actually. I did want to ask a question that's related to gaming. I think I might have missed the boat. I want to bring us back there. No, no, I had some more questions, too. (laughs) Did you, Luna, did you use libraries? Uh, Were there useful libraries that uh, were helpful in developing game-specific functionality? Um, With Go, honestly, not really. Most of the server stuff I do isn't game-specific, per se. There's some specific things like handling achievements, handling user accounts, handling leaderboards and scores, but there's not really any libraries for any of that. So I haven't really been touching any of the Go game-specific libraries. They're all mostly aimed at making game clients rather than making game servers. Okay. Yeah, there's sort of, um, in the game world, most people use some sort of engine which provides all the the physics and um, things like that and all the graphic support. And then there's usually scripting languages and things like that built into them too for a lot of the the front-end work. A few places work on their own, but a lot of people just lease or it's a right term for that. But yeah, they basically pay for the rights to use an engine. But yeah, you're right. Like a lot of work goes on the backside now. Like very few games are client only anymore yeah there's a couple that get away with just peer-to-peer multiplayer i think that's the lowest you can get away with these days but yeah a lot of games end up needing at least a little bit of server work well almost everybody has achievements or things like that leaderboards so there's all kinds of things that need to happen there and even a lot of um you're starting to notice even like in the console world even when they're like single player games it's like content is being loaded in that may have been created through somebody else's game now, too. That's true. There's also, on PC at least, there's also Steam that magically handles a lot of things for game devs. Like Steam handles cloud save, Steam handles achievements, and Steam handles patching and all the hard infrastructure bits for a lot of game developers. All right. Yeah, that's a lot of stuff that used to be duplicate work. And now you Indeed. just kind of. You can just go, Steam, do this stuff for me. And right. you have it done. And, and it's a marketplace, almost like the app stores and things like that for mobile. Yeah, like you, indeed. Like, and even for, for like, say, my Mac, I, I don't really shop the internet for software. I open up App Store and I type in a keyword, you know? Like, huh, there's all the apps that do that. So... With your interest in Go and game development, have you played with any of the the like game engine client side stuff written in um, Go? I've, with the ones written in Go, no, I haven't had a look at them except for a quick glance. The main reason for that is that they can't really compete with a fully funded UE4 or a fully funded Unity with a whole development team dedicated behind them. Yeah, that's. I guess that would be the thought. They'd be more targeted towards indie-style games than, you know, a major title. A major title, you almost have to go with, you know, uh, what are some of the common common ones? Havoc, Unreal Engine, Frostbite, Unreal Unity, Unity. Frostbite. Yeah, like, yeah. If you're going to build a major title, almost everybody uses those those types of things, except for the people creating them. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. All right. So I'd like to change the subject just a little bit. Oh, did you need to take a sponsor break, Eric? Now is a perfect time for a sponsor break. Okay. Why don't you do that? And then I will change the subject when we get back. All right. So our first sponsor for today is TopTal. Hey everyone, Adam Stukoviak here, Editor-in-Chief of Changelog. Our friends at TopTal have been sponsoring our podcast for years, and now they're sponsoring GoTime as well. We think they're one of the best ways to hire developers and designers, as well as one of the best ways to freelance as a software developer or designer. Head to toptile.com go to learn more. Tell them you heard about them on GoTime. If you'd like a more personal introduction, email me, adam at changelaw.com. And now back to the show. All right, and we are back talking to Luna DeClos. So just before the break, Brian, you wanted to change the subject. What is your new subject? 
I want to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart, probably my favorite thing in the entire world, and that's front-end web development. <laughs> and uh, I know, Luna, you've had a lot of uh, activity in the Gopher.js world. And uh, way back when I was trying to figure out whether I could actually do Gopher.js, uh, you had written the Polymer bindings for Gopher.js. Do you still spend a lot of time in Gopher.js? I actually don't at all anymore. I haven't touched Gopher.js since I changed jobs in December, unfortunately. Polymer is still a really interesting technology I'd like to spend more time on, though. Unfortunately, currently, I don't have enough time in a day to do so. That's a shame. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love web development so much that, you know, it just... It breaks my heart. Do I need to read some scroll back here, Brian? Yeah. You, you love <laughs> web development. I am so frustrated right now with front-end <laughs> web development. I would be happy to just throw the whole thing out. Aww. Just the whole thing. Done. <laughs> I'm done. Don't get me wrong. I still do quite a bit of front-end myself. Like the, the web stuff almost always ends up on the lap of the back-end people. So I'm still doing web development with JavaScript as well, just not with long Gopher.js anymore, unfortunately. Gopher.js is sure getting cool, though. I, every time I look for a binding for the bigger uh, packages, there is one now, which is really cool. Indeed, and it's not yeah. that difficult to make your own. Actually, do you know if anyone has made a binding for the second version of Polymer? My binding sticks to V1, so I'm actually curious if anyone took the torch, so to speak, and made one for V2. I don't think so, but I haven't looked recently. I was looking at the new Angular ones. Oh, there's an Angular binding. That's cool. Yep, there is, and there's uh, two or three different React bindings now. There's Mithril bindings, there's Vue bindings. Very nice. I haven't played a lot with the bindings and stuff like that, or go for JS. I've tended to just separate there's the api and there's kind of the front end code yeah same same here pretty much in an ideal world i want to just deploy some static html css and javascript and do everything on the rest api that that's the perfect world scenario right there yeah my biggest problem with gopher.js is that uh, although it's so much easier to write the front end code in gopher.js i still have the lack of knowledge of front-end technologies, events, DOM, mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. So yeah. now I've added another layer of translation that I have to make in order to use that, and it makes, mm -hmm. it, makes it harder for me, not easier. Yeah. And there's also the fact that it's, you're going to have a hard time hiring someone that knows Gopher.js already. You're almost always going to have to teach them from scratch, at least if you hire a front-end dedicated developer. That's been one of the big showstoppers for me for Gopher.js, actually. It's not big enough yet to have a hiring pool. Uh, right, yeah, because typically in a larger organization, you're going to have your front-end people and your back-end people. So you would have to teach your front-end people Go in order to use Gopher.js. Indeed. That's interesting. And Brian, I think most of your struggles are usually because when you have to do front-end, you're usually trying to do it in a hurry. That's not true. <laughs> like, My struggles are because when I have to do front end, it's a freaking disaster. Has anybody actually looked at the JavaScript ecosystem recently? So the problem I had maybe was it two nights ago, I was using a TypeScript application. I was writing a TypeScript application for Angular 2. And then I had to bring in a, another library that wasn't TypeScript and it wasn't using the same module packaging format uh, and i just just you know i because i had to go down that rabbit hole now i understand that there's amd module packaging and umd and system js and all of these different module packages that's that's why i think the whole thing should just burn in a trash fire <laughs> it's so complicated trying to make stuff work it's frustrating I I will not disagree with you i've had my share of frustrations because of the same reason and also because, at least in my experience, this is not a diss to all the front-end developers out there, but a lot of front-end developers don't seem to know what they're doing. It's, it's just 
lots of copy-pasted bits from various places made to work forcefully in the current context without actually making sense entirely is the law of the code I've looked at is that way. Yeah, I think there's a couple of issues though too, right? Is a lot of times you end up with front-end developers who are really designers and that's really where their interest is and they're kind of forced to learn programming, right? Or you have back-end programmers who are just trying to rush to get the front-end stuff done because that's not really what they want to use. Mm -hmm. And it seems like there's a lot of fragmentation in that area, kind of to, to Brian's point, is there's so many different ways of doing those things. And I think that's kind of one of the things that I love about Go so much and that, you know, enforcing these patterns is mostly people do things the same way. There's not like, well, how are you managing these things? How are you doing dependency management? And asset pipelines and things like that. Yeah, I think the, if there was a Go equivalent, there thankfully isn't. But if there was, it would be, which context package are you using? <laughs> thankfully, we haven't gone there. Somebody on Twitter, when I made my snarky tweet about all of the different package management systems and dependency management in JavaScript, somebody said, well, we've got you know 28 versions of vendoring tools in Go. That's and that's true. true. But we have one vendor standard. Yeah. And regardless of which tool you use, it pretty much works. So that is quite a bit different. Although, you know, I understand that we have fragmentation, in, at least in the, the vendoring side. You know, apps are apps and Go, and it, it is quite a bit easier. We're slow, slowly solving it, though. Hopefully, GoDep comes out and fixes all those issues. Though, I have my doubts a little bit, but we'll see how that goes. Only time will tell. Indeed. Where's Carlisi at? I'm here. <laughs> you guys are asking great questions. <laughs> She's writing a new dependency manager for JavaScript for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. She's just sitting here thinking about like, wow, I didn't realize how much Brian hated front end. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that I hate it. I mean, there, you know, I actually... I crossed a point recently where I, I feel like, you know, I can understand TypeScript because it's, it's, you know, it's got classes, it's got types, it's, it's much more strongly typed than regular JavaScript. I, I, I can kind of get behind that. It's not bad. And Angular is pretty easy to do for me. It's easier than most of the others. So if it's just TypeScript and Angular, it's cool. It's when I have to add in all the other stuff. It's that whole web pipeline and, yeah. and SAS compiling and um, you know, once once you get into having to mix Gulp and Bower and and Webpack and just shoot me in the head right now. <laughs> so, Brian, how much front end work have you been forced to do lately? Um, I'd say sixty percent of my work in the last month has been front end. Maybe a little more. Too much. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm I'm getting better slowly, but I am an old dog. <laughs> It's changed a lot in recent years. There, there didn't be, used to be so much involved there until we got into the, the minimize everything. And and now we're moving away from that again with HTTP2, which actually advises people not to pack all their files together. Yeah, I got the biggest kick out of that. So the rabbit hole that I went down, you know, the people were talking, I think it was, maybe it was on the system.js side, I don't remember, but you know, one of the things was, you know, you bundling to make a single file but we don't do that anymore because http2 means that you can send lots of multiple requests so you need to decide whether your consumers are going to be http2 or not because that affects completely how you bundle your whole app and you know what your pipeline is Indeed. and it's just yet another decision i don't want to have to make i mean i guess it would depend on the way you've had things set up too i don't know with a lot of the asset pipeline stuff whether people are still doing this but one of the tricks that has been around for years is to just have multiple asset domains because really the browser's limitation is one connection per host. So if you had multiple hosts that your assets were on, it could, mm -hmm. it could fetch from yeah. each host. In fact, some CDNs actually do that for you automatically. They'll distribute your content across several domains and you'll see c1 dot 
whatever cdn.com c2 dot whatever cdn.com and so on and so on it, it's been quite interesting seeing how some apps are starting to integrate with their cdns more i remember that was one of the first rails plugins that i wrote was a uh host host i don't even know what you would call that host multiplier that basically treated every um treated every server as if it were 20 servers so you had 20 different asset servers instead of one uh-huh. and all you're just using you know that was that was way back in the day asset hosts yeah steve st martin in the channel mentioned that before that existed i wrote one of those uh-huh. back in nom <laughs> i i can i can see you back in nom sharing rails development stories <laughs> <laughs> all right so does everybody want to talk about anything else? Interesting projects and news? There's a lot of interesting stuff that came out this week. Probably the most exciting one, or at least the, the most interesting one, is the Goggles application. Anybody see that? From Kyle Banks. So at github.com slash Kyle Banks slash Goggles, it's a, an application that lets you search your GoPath for code, and it shows you the GoDoc. It's, it's really a nice, um, it's almost like a little admin interface for your, for your GoPath, show you all of the code, all of the GoDoc. It's, it's very pretty and well-written, and it's got a cute little pop-up gopher that comes up when you're searching. You know, nicely done app. Oh, yeah, that. I've seen it on Twitter. It's, I've been meaning to try it out, actually. I should do that. You know, Brian, I'm actually really surprised that you installed it because it requires working with NPM and Gulp. I've got NPM installed and Gulp and Bower and Webpack. <laughs> and I just mean you, you're using those things so much. <laughs> it's, it's, all, it's all right here, buddy. It's all right here. My chops are getting strong. I can picture it too. You're like, wow, this looks really cool. Ooh, NPM. How badly do I want this? <laughs> I'm surprised that this hasn't been all bundled in one neat single Go binary that you can just start up. That's a good idea. I'm trying to to get by without installing NPM and Gulp. I don't have those in in this machine. So I I can tell you the reason for all of that is because it uses Gallium, which is the wrapper for the Chrome web app thing that makes it a native app. And... I, I would bet you a dollar that Kyle does not have a Apple developer account, so he can't sign those web apps or sign those Gallium apps, which means that he can't distribute applications in the new Mac OS because they're not signed. So you have to build them yourself. I see. That's this, be. this all boils down to developer signatures. Hmm. Is it Mac only, though, or does it also work on it Linux? And on, uh... It's Mac only right now. Oh. Well, it seems like most of it's written in Go and front-end stuff. So the Gallium part, I think, is just what wraps it into a native application. So in theory, there's no reason this couldn't be served up over HTTP and you could hit a a local port or something, too. Yeah, that's what I was expecting it to do. So maybe you should look at that. If you dig through the source code, he's got um, the whole system... uh, source file under package sys is all Mac specific. So it, it definitely will need at least a Linux and Windows versions of that file before it's going to fly. Mm-hmm. They're fairly small files, though, so it shouldn't be too difficult to get that done. I'm sure he would happily take pull requests, too. I'm sure. And every time I turn anywhere, I've seen this app on Twitter, on uh, Reddit. So it's gotten a lot of attention recently. Oh, I think he was even on the Go newsletter today. So it should it should be getting more issue uh, attention soon. Did that come through already? I I have not seen the newsletter today. Yeah, I don't think it was that long ago though. I think it was just um, maybe an hour before the show. Okay, one thirty p.m. our time. All right. What else we got? I noticed that the uh, GoKit team released their zero point four point zero release. And that moved to the inbuilt context library in Go 1.8. So no longer using the XNet contact package anymore in GoKit. So that's a big release for them. Oh, cool. Uh, very exciting to see all of the uh, cool stuff coming out of that GoKit package. And uh, speaking of releases, too, I think um, GoBot just had a release this week, too, didn't it? I don't know. If they did, I missed it. I, I, I will Google that. Is it possible that I missed a release of something? It's it's quite possible. Nah. Oh yeah, go about one point three. You're right. 
now supporting the BBC Microbit and Dragon Board. Very cool. Is anyone using GoBot here? Yes. I've actually been very curious about it, but haven't. I don't actually have one of those boards to try it out with. Actually, so you can use it with just about anything. If you have a, a Raspberry Pi or BeagleBlown, or you, you can run GoBot on anything that basically has a GPIO. Yeah, Intel Edison, you name it. It runs on everything. And and we've so I have a project called Cupid, which is a uh, barbecue controlling application that runs on a Raspberry Pi and it controls my barbecue and that all runs in robot. <laughs> that is awesome. It really is cool. It's um it's the only way to barbecue. <laughs> it, it, like, you need to invite me to one of those. <laughs> any day. Uh, hardware is interesting because I don't think many of us think much about it until like aside from using, you know, embedded devices, but actually developing against it is really cool because we all love programming and we love seeing the things that come to life. But like being able to see it interact with physical objects is just ridiculously cool. Like the the, the smoker controlling the temperature, like there's go code controlling that. And Brian wrote it. It's really cool. I also have used uh, GoBot to control AR drone drones at my kids' schools. So we do a, a, a thing every year called the Great American Teach-In where parents come in and talk about what they do. And, you know, I couldn't explain to the students that my work is actually that boring. So I, I did GoBot with drones. And the, the kids who were eight years old programmed the drone to fly around the room. And they did a little flyby of the teacher. And it was really cool. And all that's Go-powered. That sounds awesome. I wonder if there's a list somewhere of all the projects that are currently using it. But yeah, they have uh, interfaces with all kinds of cool little toys. Um, have you seen the Sphero? It's like a little little ball that rolls around and you can jump it and all these things and you can play with it with your mobile phone. But they have an uh, interface for that, for GoBot. A ton of cool stuff. How about you, Carlicia? What? Do you see, I'm sorry. Do you see any cool projects or anything that you're excited about? <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to ask if, if I if I'm using GoBot or no. Or GoBot. <laughs> no. Yes. Um, I wanted to mention that the women who go well, Sarah Adams, the founder of Women Who Go, launched a, an initiative to send women Go developers to go for con. Uh, there are a lot of us who. Would not be able to afford and would not have their company sponsor so there is a crowdfunding effort for that so if people want to contribute ten dollars a thousand dollars anything is welcome of course a million dollars a million dollars <laughs> <laughs> and it's tax deductible um because women who go now is part of bridge foundry same as GoBridge. I don't know how the tax deductible part of this works for for the women who go for this initiative, but, but I think it is tax tax deductible. Yeah, the it Bridge is. Foundry, which is a five hundred one c three, probably collects the money, which makes it tax deductible. Yeah, I, I don't know, just because it's done via the website, via this uh, generosity dot com website. So I don't know how that applies. And we should soon too um, be. So in addition to trying to help with that, um, we also will be doing like a diversity and um, economic hardship type scholarship initiative too soon once we finish getting some more planning in place for some of the other GopherCon stuff. But there will be ways for people to apply for assistance to come to GopherCon too who may not necessarily be women. Yeah. GoBridge is also going to be doing something. We'll announce in a little bit. Um, are there any plans for a gopher con outside of the U.S. yet? I wonder. We we keep thinking and talking about that. <laughs> yeah, okay. So we've also been saying that about regionals too. So um, I think it comes down to time because right now Brian and I um, have day job stuff that pays the bills. And it's mm -hmm. already kind of demanding enough on our nights and weekends and stuff to, yeah. to do the one event. So that's why we keep talking about, well, how crazy do we have to be to do more than one? <laughs> the answer to that is really crazy. So, but we keep talking about it. And if we can find ways to um, 
to, to make that work schedule wise or where we can have the time to work on more than one. Yeah, we definitely keep talking about doing another one and where we might do it. Sweden. Hmm. I would I would definitely dig Sweden seeing as I live there. So <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> I've never been to Sweden. Sounds like fun. Spain. <laughs> Spain would be awesome. Anyway, Spain, yeah. South Sp- southern Spain. Sounds good too. I have to admit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One more thing I wanted to mention. Uh, there is now a Go, an official Go contribution guide. Steve Fancia put it together recently, maybe last week. So it gives you all the steps that you need to do to contribute to Go. Oh, wow. That's awesome. I haven't looked at it yet. I saw his announcement, but uh, it's long overdue. That's nice. He, he works ridiculously fast. I mean, we just had him on a couple episodes ago, and we were kind of talking about some of this stuff. And he's already he's already on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Way to go! That's a big doc, too. Yeah. Yeah. I I can't believe I haven't even seen this. I'll put I'll drop a link on Slack. All right, I'm leaving. Uh, I'm leaving the tab open. That's a a read later, which gets demoted to read tomorrow, and then read this weekend. Then read never. <laughs> and, then it, and then and then Chrome blows up. And then it becomes a bookmark. And then, you know, two years from now I, I clean up my bookmarks. At least we're honest about it. Oh, you know, there was one more package that I wanted to talk about. Uh Cockroach DB uh actually had a blog post about it too, the arbitrary precision decimal package, so that they could um manage data types that had arbitrary precision with a little bit more speed than what Go allows. So at cockroach, uh, github.com slash cockroachdb slash APD, there's a nice arbitrary precision decimal package. And I don't have a link to the blog post, but maybe we can dig that up somewhere too. I'm pretty sure there was a blog post that went with it. Yeah, we'll drop it. We'll find it and we'll drop it in the show notes before this episode is released. So I think now is a perfect time for our second sponsor break. So our second sponsor for today is the Ultimate Go Training Series. Our friends at Arden Labs offer some of the best training classes for Go, web, and data science folks. They've trained over a thousand students from all over the world over the past two years. They offer corporate training in Go, web, and data science taught by Bill Kennedy, Daniel Whitenack, and John Gossett. Bill wrote the Go in Action book, and all three have given talks at conferences and events all over the world. They offer two and three full-day intensive courses that literally take any developer to a whole new level. The classes teach specification, implementation, mechanics, guidelines, and best practices with a lot of personal experience. They also provide a high-energy environment to keep those involved excited and focused throughout the class. Even your most experienced developers will get something out of every class. To learn more, head to ardenlabs.com slash gotime and tell them Eric from GoTime sent you. All right, and we are back talking to Luna DeClo. Before this, we were just kind of talking about interesting projects and news and stuff. But let's get a little, let's get a little personal here. If you were not developing back-end systems for games, what would you be doing? I think this would be a fun thing to start asking people. That's a really good question. What would I be doing? And it doesn't even have to be tech. Hmm. I think I'd either be full-time doing conferences or working at some cloud provider somewhere on their cloud infrastructure. Or both. So doing conferences, you mean hosting them, attending all of them that you can, speaking at them, all of the above? Uh, speaking at them and attending them. And maybe organize some smaller ones. Like I've been organizing FOSDEM when I can because the Go team hasn't been able to do it. So I took that over. Stuff like that and meetups and stuff that aren't too huge to organize. Like, I wouldn't be able to organize something like GopherCon like you guys are. That's just crazy. I don't even know if we can organize GopherCon. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's, that's questionable. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, um, it's grown to a scale far beyond our abilities. So we've, uh, over the years, we, we've hired people to help with different parts and logistics and things like that, too. So, yeah, it's, uh, 
it's interesting though too like i i love the involvement with the community and doing things for the community and especially the day of kind of seeing just how excited everybody is it's infectious we need to make one of those uh one of those go for con excitement curve kind of graphics where you show <laughs> you know at the day of the conference you know excitement level 11 and then like four months before the conference excitement level negative 50. <laughs> you know just that that big it's almost like the adoption curve where you know maturity model where you know during the conference everything is just it couldn't be any better it's the best event that's ever happened and it's so awesome getting the community together but when you're at that point where the conference is two or three months away and all you're doing is making website changes and booking things for speakers and you know fighting vendors and contract changes and you know all of that stuff it's like you know wish this conference just be over with please I understand. As much as I hate to make the comparison, the way I see it is it's kind of like women in pregnancy. Oh, danger, Will Robinson. I'm never doing this again. I'm done. <laughs> like, I'm so ready for this baby. And then later, they see, it, they see another cute baby. They're like, oh, I want another one. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the same thing for us. We go through our period. We're like, I don't know whether I want to do this again. And then we're like, oh, my God, we need to do 20 conferences. Yeah, three years in a row. We've said three years in a row after the conference, we're not doing this again. <laughs> we're never doing this again. You have been doing it again. Yeah, it's amazing how that works. I think we should make this fair too. We're, we're gonna go. We're gonna go around the the virtual room here. If you were not writing code, Brian, what would you be doing? I'd be a professional hitman. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, was not expecting that one. <laughs> okay. I was expecting a full-time barbecue shop, actually. Yeah, there's no money in that. Barbecue is the so it's interesting. I have most of my family members, uh, older family members, are in restaurant business, and the um, the restaurant industry has almost a, a Maslow's hierarchy of types of food, and barbecue is the lowest demand food when uh, there's a recession in place so people eat barbecue last when there's a recession so it's not a recession proof restaurant so i would just never open a barbecue restaurant besides i think you'd lose a lot of the fun if you were cooking for a paycheck instead of just cooking for the whole neighborhood like i do that's true what's really interesting about that though is it's the reverse of what you would expect because barbecue actually started out in in very poor areas because you know, you got things like the, the front quarter of a cow was almost waste for a long time and they would just chop it up and grind it up and make sausage out of it. And they'd make, you know, they'd slow cook it in the basically in the, the butcher shops and stuff like that to preserve it. And then they'd sell it as like chopped beef sandwiches and things like that. And, you know, people would slow cook the, the toughest parts of the cow that nobody wanted till it was tender. And then eat it. And then it was somewhere along the line, people started traveling to areas and tasting barbecue and be like, oh my God, I love this. And brisket went from like 70 cents a pound to, I don't even know, what is it, like $700 a pound now? It's ridiculous. Yeah. $8 million a pound. <laughs> so it's just kind of crazy that it's reversed like that because that was the best way you could feed the most amount of people was to, you know, take a pig and, and, and throw the pig on. And, and Carlicia, you're not getting out of this too. What would you be doing? <laughs> the banter gave me time to think. Um, I would be an investor. I would uh, be a professional investor, just look for opportunities to invest on things that would be not only profitable, but good to a certain standard. I'm not going to get into it. I don't even know what that means. It's just like whatever I would think it, it, it would generate goodwill in the world. And of oh. course, a lot of it would be tech. Because it's what I know, and it's so so crucial for the world. I think it'd be a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. If I win the lottery, I'll definitely become an investor. <laughs> what about you, Eric? Oh no, I started this. I don't have to answer the question. Oh yeah, you do. Oh yes, oh, you, yes. Could, <laughs> you, you could be my handler. I don't know. That'd be it, it's really hard though. Like the investment thing would be fun. I love doing community and conference related stuff. M maybe something in uh, information security, probably. The hard part is, is like, I know people in the field and I know 
like the different roles and some of the stuff that you wouldn't want to do. But if I could have like the ultimate, like I just get, you know, grants to sit around and, and hack technologies that they say are unhackable. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Or inventing stuff. All right, I'm going to go with that inventing stuff. Just sitting around with gadgets and electronics and coding and just trying to solve problems. You could be Q for me. That'd be awesome. I could be Q. Q, you know, like James Bond. He walks into the room <laughs> and Q gives him new tech gadgets. <laughs> Can I claim that I didn't know what they were being used for? Sure. If it ever comes to a congressional committee, don't worry, you'll never make it to trial. He said it was for hunting. He didn't say people. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. All right. Did anybody have any other cool things they want to talk about? We want to do Free Software Friday. Yes, we have to do Free Software Friday because I have a huge shout out that everybody's going to be blown away by, surprised. (laughs) (laughs) The ultimate irony. I'm eagerly waiting for that one. Are you ready? So so my Free Software Friday shout out is to, drumroll please, Webpack. And the reason (laughs) it's to Webpack is because... The documentation on their website is some of the absolute best documentation I've ever seen. And I was whining about Webpack on Twitter and like three people came up and said, did you even RTFM, dude? And I went to the documentation. I was like, holy cow, I should have because I would probably solve all of my problems if I read this wonderful documentation. So huge shout out to the Webpack team. And it looks like the the docs are community source. So everybody in the Webpack community, thank you for all of those fantastic documents. Nice. Nice. Yeah, I think we owe like tremendous gratitude to anybody who works on documentation because we all need it and rarely do any of us want to actually contribute to the documentation. So, yeah, I think we have to, to show love to anybody who, who invests time in giving us great documentation. How about you, Carlicia? I don't have one today. Okay. And um, Luna? Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure you kind of gathered the gist of this. Every uh, week, we kind of give a shout out to a project or maintainer Mm -hmm. or plurals of those just to kind of show our love and appreciation. Yeah. Uh, My shout out goes without the shadow of a doubt to Goa. Woot! Uh, Goa is a code generation framework that lets you declare an API, a REST API, and will then generate all the validations, all the routes all the security wrappers, all the middleware for you without you having to do a thing. It has saved me so much time and it's helped me a lot by making, designing the API an actual explicit step of my development process, which is lacking in a lot of places where they just slap APIs together and see if it works afterwards and to hell if it doesn't make sense. I'm wearing my Goa shirt, so thumbs up to that one. Nice. Yeah, Brian, Brian was preaching Goa for almost a year. What happened, Brian? Nothing. I still love Goa. In fact, <laughs> I've, I've been following the, um, uh, the Goa 2.0 uh, roadmap, and Goa 2.0 is going to be amazing. They're, they've moved everything into uh, a kind of a separation of concerns where your API is separate in the design from the delivery of your API, so you can have a beautiful REST API generated as well as a nice gRPC API generated from the same design. And it's it's going to look it's going to be really good. I'm looking forward to that. How stable is it actually? Uh, the the Goa 2.0. It's it's mm-hmm. not done. Uh, I was just reading the docs okay. last night. It's it's not ready yet, but it's it's getting closer. Right. Knowing how fast Raphael codes, it's probably just a couple hours away. But my guess is, <laughs> is is really just you know maybe two or three weeks based on the way it looked in my code review last night. Very very nice. Which means I have to rewrite Gorma again. I, I will need to start looking at Goa two point zero then. So that goes back to the whole uh, argument about like the the fear of creating open source projects is you have to mm-hmm. maintain them because people will start hounding you like. Why is why does this not go go a two compatible? I've actually start I've actually experienced the reverse that when I open source things, people make pull requests and fix my bugs for me without me having to actually do it. But, uh, even that has some overhead though. Like that's true. I, I I get a lot of GitHub chatter, so it ends up in a folder that I rarely check. 
And then like people, I will feel bad because somebody submitted a pull request or something and I don't see it for like nine months. Mm-hmm. Ow. And I'm like, oh, I am a terrible person. <laughs> yeah. One ritual I have in the morning is when I wake up, I go check my GitHub alerts, see if there's anything there. Respond. I actually do this before I have my breakfast. Yeah, I need a better schedule, but I feel like I just put the time there. So my free software Friday for today is Helm, which um, was worked on by the, the Deus group. And uh, it's actually got one of the, I, one of, I think it might be the first project that's got graduated from beta directly into Kubernetes proper. So Helm is actually like a cool tool. They, they, they have these things called chart which are basically like prepackaged applications for running, say, like MySQL or Postgres on Kubernetes. Mm-hmm. Helm is the bomb. Helm is awesome. I need to try it. Well, because prior to Helm, I mean, everybody was pretty much rolling their own stuff. Yeah, and that's work. I mean, Kubernetes makes your life easier, but not during the part where you're wiring together 62 different Docker files and putting it in YAML <laughs> format. And oh my gosh. Yeah. Ugh. I still love Kubernetes because the alternative is still worse. Oh, yeah. Don't get me wrong. I'm not complaining. Now just we're just that's, getting That's picky. the least favorite part. Yes. You're like, oh, man, I have to configure this YAML file to deploy my app. And before it was like logging into servers. Right. Well, you know, anything but YAML. Every single time I touch YAML, uh, there is a space somewhere or a tab <laughs> somewhere that gets me anything but YAML. You realize that kubectl can eat up JSON files as well, right? You don't have to use YAML if you don't want to. I did know that, yes. And now they have nice uh, YAML verification built into the latest kubectls, so it's not as bad as it used to be. But when I was a kid, back before (laughs) Kubernetes was 1.0, yeah, it was eating my lunch all day long. Fair enough. So so on the, um, the question of what would you be doing, so... It wouldn't be Python programming, right? You and your spaces. Oh, are you talking to me? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, and actually, that's that's the biggest reason that I've never enjoyed Python is because all of that white space means something. Stop! Don't don't do that to me. Bad. I used to love Python back when I was at school, and after school, it went kind of like. No, I don't actually want to use this to make real things. Too scary. I don't mind it. I I guess I don't really have like a hatred for any language. I just prefer some languages over others. Oh, don't get me wrong. It's not actually because of the white space in my case. It's more the weak typing and all the errors being runtime rather than compile time. That kind of stuff scares me. I've never had a runtime issue in production. <laughs> It's like, if this was on video, my nose just grew, you know, like a right. mile long. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I love that about Go, right? Is like you, you gain a lot of that stuff from dynamic languages. You know, the way we write software and think about writing software. But that that compile time safety is so nice. It is. Oh, like, yeah. No, no, you can't do that. You, you cannot pass a string where an integer is expected. I tell you what, though, I was I was working on a um, like a live admin app for Buffalo this weekend with Ashley McNamara. We were pairing on it on Saturday, trying to figure out a way to make a really nice, you know, like Django admin or, or Rails Active admin, but for Buffalo. And I actually hit a point where I wished that Go had generics, and it's the first time in seven ish years that I was like, "Damn, generics would be really useful here," and that's it, the first time it's happened to me. I almost stopped in my tracks and wrote it down. I guess it depends on the type of stuff you work on. You know, there are, there are some fields and in, in problem spaces where I could see generics needing to be used regularly. But for most of us, we're like, oh, that sucks. I wish I had generics. And we're like, yeah, but there's another way. And I only have to do this once. So, yeah. Mm. And code generation helps. Well, that's what I did. Instead of doing any generics, I just wrote a code generator that wrote a code generator. And now I'm done. But who wrote the code generator? I did. <laughs> which, came, which came first? The code or the generator? <laughs> the answer is the rooster. <laughs> the rooster. 
<laughs> Carlicia, you're you're awfully quiet today. I am. I don't know why. <laughs> she's she's contemplating who she's going to hire me to hit first. <laughs> <laughs> no, man. No. Sorry, you'll be out of business if you're depending on me. I'm going to be starving. Yeah. <laughs> World's shortest lived hitman. I think you should just stick to popping gators with pellet guns. Shh. <laughs> this is a PG show. It says the want to be a hitman. <laughs> <laughs> and we're done. So thanks everybody for coming to Go Time. Don't forget to hit us on gotime.fm slash ping something. Oh, Eric. That was supposed to be our secret. <laughs> like, remember, children, don't shoot at alligators, but you can shoot at people. <laughs> so the backstory here is that there's a seven foot gator in a pond behind our house. I mean, right behind my house. And I've got a BB gun. And every time he comes kind of near my shore, I shoot him in the butt because he needs to <laughs> stay away from my family. And and this has been going on for about a week now. And, you know, we're talking a small BB gun and a big gator. It's not. There's no chance I could hurt him, but I would like to, you know, provide some negative reinforcement for my neighborhood. So every time he comes nearby, I shoot him in the butt with a BB gun and, and he f- goes away. And I'm hoping that at some point shortly, he's going to learn, hey, hey, this whole south shore of this lake is a really painful place to be. And he just won't come back because he's getting too big. Seven feet is big enough to eat my dog. Now, what if you're not there? Well, somebody else will have to shoot him. I don't know. <laughs> Well, don't big gators, I mean, I don't know anything about the U.S., but don't big gators eventually get shot or pick up, picked up by a zoo or something? Um, so here what happens is they will leave the gator completely alone until someone complains about it. And at the point that they complain about it, they send in a trapper and the trapper will kill it and render it for meat and sell it. So there is no gator relocation program. If you make a phone call and say this gator's too big, they're going to come and kill it. And I certainly don't want any animals to die unnecessarily, especially ones that I can't eat. So you know, I don't see any point in calling and having the gator removed because it's just going to die. I just, I would like him to, you know, harvest his little party somewhere else. And yeah, not in, not in my little shore. So I'm, I'm just using some negative reinforcement therapy. I keep telling him one of these nights that thing's going to crawl in his window. <laughs> it's going to try. <laughs> Revenge of the Gator. Boy, did we go off topic. So thanks for busting out my, <laughs> thanks for breaking out my story to the whole entire world, Eric. I appreciate that. I will remember this. <laughs> gator shooter. <sighs> it's better than the alternative. I remember the first time I learned they put him down. I, I always thought they relocated him, but. Oh, no. Turns turns out that is that is not correct. They. They're just worried because if they're a nuisance here, they may be a nuisance somewhere else and yeah. they escalate. Most of the time, it's not a problem as long as people aren't feeding them and things like that. That's usually when they keep coming up onto people's properties and people are dumb enough to feed them. And then they start coming to look for dogs and things like that. Kids. There's a lot of them. Like a million or 100,000 in Florida. There's a lot. It's like They used to be an endangered species back in the late 60s, early 70s. And now they're so many of them that they're opening uh, more hunting seasons and it's just it's ridiculous they're, they're overpopulated now so we our conservation efforts did a great job of keeping the gator alive and now we have a bb gun problem and now each citizen of the state of florida is issued an alligator when they move here <laughs> <laughs> uh so so with that we should probably close <laughs> the show and do a lot of this rambling in our after show. I don't. I don't know how many Go programmers are concerned about the uh, the gator population in Florida. I don't know, but I think I, I think we just lost half of our our listenership with this show. <laughs> Between gators and hitmen, we're done. We're done. Or maybe I'm just going to get voted off the island. Adam's getting emails now from sponsors. Yeah. <laughs> Shh, this is not a PG show anymore. All right. So with that, uh, thank everybody for being on the show today. Huge thank you to our listeners, both live and everybody who will be listening to this uh, when this episode is released. Uh, giant thank you to our sponsors for today's episode, TopTal and the Ultimate Go Training Series. Definitely share this show with fellow Go programmers, fan, friends, family, coworkers. 
you can subscribe by going to gotime.fm. We are at gotime.fm on Twitter. And if you want to be on the show, have suggestions for guests or topics, uh, github.com slash gotime.fm slash ping. And then uh, we have two Slack channels. So there's a changelog Slack, which we are hashtag gotime in. And on if you're on Gopher Slack, it's gotime.fm. And the messages actually cross back and forth, so it doesn't really matter which one you're in. Uh, it's kind of a shared uh, channel. And with that, uh, we'll see you guys next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Luna. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, that wraps up this episode of Go Time. Tune in live on Thursdays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time. Head to changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at GoTimeFM. Special thanks to TopTal and Ultimate Go for sponsoring this show. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. This episode was edited by Jonathan Youngblood, and the theme music for GoTime is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening.